Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. God, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it and that we can learn more about you and who you are through it. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that the words of my, of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and that we can grow in fellowship with one another and with you more through, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, Nathan, in, in preaching through Exodus 6, Nathan brought up Luke 22, verse 20, which says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, and this is Jesus talking, talking about the Lord's Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that just led me to ask the question, why do we need a new covenant? And when, when Nathan asked me to preach, that is, that is the theme of my two-week uh, s- series, is why do we need a new covenant? So this week we're going to look at the old covenant and covenants in general, what they were um, and what they are in the Bible. So a covenant, in terms of a simple definition, is an agreement between two parties or two people. And in this agreement, there are rules and requirements that each party is supposed to follow and commit to. But in the Bible, it is through covenants that God's kingdom purposes unfold and his redemptive plan comes to be. It's through covenants that God brings us into reconciliation and redemption in in Christ Jesus. Through these covenants, God really makes his whole, all of redemption come to be. All the major covenants in scripture are between God and man, and they carry their own requirements and obligations. All these covenants reveal the character of God, and most of them almost solely depend on God to, for them to be upheld and for them to be carrying through. The first covenant that we see in Scripture is with Noah when God promises in Genesis 8 and 9 not to flood the earth ever again. He promises that, that he will not wipe out sinful humanity ever again, and the sign of that covenant, the sign of the promise, is the rainbow that we see every time it rains. God reminding us that he is not going to flood the earth. And another sign for us in Tehachapi is the brown mountains and the, uh, the fact that we have to weed whack by June 1st. <laughs> with Abraham, the second covenant that God made with man, it is, it is the foundational covenant for all the covenants that follow, the Davidic covenant, the covenant he makes with the priests, and ultimately the new covenant which we fall under as believers. This is called uh, the Abrahamic covenant, and it's really the, the beginning of us seeing God's plan to save people and to restore all things. Most, we must understand this covenant properly in order to understand all the following covenants and the old covenant which we'll be focusing on today. So in Genesis 12, one to three, God says this to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in the next five chapters, God opens that covenant up even more and explains it more clearly what he is going to do through Abraham. The key promises 
of this covenant come from Genesis 17. And God promises Abraham that he would be a great nation and that many nations would come from him. He promises that he will make Abraham's name great and that through Israel, his, his offspring, all the other nations will be blessed. God will treat others based on how they treat Abraham, that kings will come from him, and he establishes in Genesis 17 that this covenant is everlasting, meaning that God will uphold this covenant forever. It will never be broken because it depends upon God alone. It establishes God's plan for his people, blessings to the nations, a land for Israel, and it establishes it being upheld by God. The next covenant that we see is the Mosaic covenant, or the, the covenant that God gives to Moses following the exodus from Egypt. So if you turn to Exodus 19, verse 5, we'll see the Mosaic covenant. So Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, and this is God speaking to Moses, uh, and eventually Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is making an agreement with Israel that that he will make them his nation. It marks the birth of Israel as a nation, and it's, an on, it's part of the ongoing fulfillment of, God, of God's promise and covenant with Abraham, a, a people treasured by God, the offspring of Abraham, and he's promising them the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. But this covenant is different than most of the other covenants. The one with Noah, with Abraham, and with, uh, with David are all everlasting and unconditional. God promises that he will bring these covenants to their fulfillment. With the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant, God places upon Israel conditions. And this con- these conditions are known as the law. We can't have the old covenant without the law. They go hand in hand. And they, they really or God telling Israel how they should live as God's people. It is how Israel is going to operate within this covenant as a kingdom of priests because he's giving them the law so that they would be separate from the other nations. So that when other nations look at them, they know that they are Yahweh's, or yeah, those nations know that they are Yahweh's people, that they are a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They point other people to God. There were also Israel's rules for governing uh, their social life. It was their worship system. All in all, there's 613 commandments between Exodus, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And they are summed up in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And ultimately, Jesus sums these up by saying that we are to love our, the Lord our God and to love our neighbors. The law can be summed up in that way, that we love God and we love our neighbors. 
This covenant is conditional. It's requiring obedience from Israel. It is temporary and uh, will only last as long as Israel upholds their end. And spoiler alert, they, they don't. Jeremiah 31, 32, in talking about the new covenant that, he, that God's going to bring, God refers to the old one as the one that they broke, the one that Israel broke, meaning that there's an eventual end to this covenant. But this covenant is still important. Even though it, it is the old covenant, what it does is it makes makes Israel God's people and his nation. It makes them a nation. It gives them their laws that they are supposed to live by. It gives them the foundations for their society and how they worship God. The immediate purpose of the covenant is that it is God's intended way for Israel to show its love and commitment to him through their obedience. Following the covenant was an act of worship that Israel could partake in. What it does for us is that it models, it models what it means to obey God with the faith that he will bring future rewards. Because their faithful obedience leads to blessings. It leads to economic and financial prosperity. It leads to a people who are, who are fertile both in the womb and in their farming. They're protected in their travel. Their military will be blessed. They'll be established as God's people. And most importantly... God's presence would be with them when they obeyed the covenant and, and the law. But we know how well Israel obeys. Pretty much from page, or Exodus 20 on, through the rest of the Old Testament, it is Israel continually breaking the law. Even under the rule of Moses, they break the law. God tells them how they're supposed to treat the manna. They don't do what God tells them to do. God tells them not to have any other idols, not to make carved images. They make the golden calf. After Moses, through Judges, we see just a cycle of Israel breaking the law. Their first king doesn't uphold the covenant. Their second king, the one picked by God, breaks the covenant, and he is the peak. David is the peak of the kings. From then on, it is just a slow and then eventually a steep drop-off in terms of Israel's separation from the law. In fact, at one point, Israel loses the Torah. They lose the laws that God has commanded them to live by. King Josiah is commended because he found the law and, and enacted what God has commanded them to live by. But what we see this is God continually showing grace throughout Israel's history. We see God, God's character revealed as he describes himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. Israel's history with the law shows us that God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger for all the generations that we see Israel breaking the law until exile. He was faithful and steadfast in his love for his people despite their disregard for him and for the law. In verse, at the end of verse 7, God says he, he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Eventually, God holds Israel accountable for their sin, eventually punishing them for breaking the covenant, revoking all of the blessings promised. When Israel, just before Israel is put into exile, their borders are almost as are almost to where David had them when, when they were at their peak. They're a prosperous nation. But Hosea describes them as a people who don't know God. And because of that, they are punished. God takes away those blessings. He brings in Babylon and Assyria, crushes Israel, and pulls them out from the land, effectively reversing the exodus. They go from being pulled out of slavery, getting their own nation in their land. They break the covenant, and then God puts them back into slavery. He revokes the blessings that were promised. Israel's disobedience is rooted in two ways that they misunderstood the law. The first way they misunderstood it was that they saw it as a way to salvation, as a way to righteousness. The second way is that they became ritualistic in the law. Those two things go hand in hand. They saw it as a means for salvation and righteousness, and that led them to just following it ritualistically and not out of love and worship to God. So let's look at that first way that Israel misunderstands the law. Obedience leading to salvation. In no way is the purpose of the law to, to make Israel righteous. That was never the intended purpose, and there was no way that they could do that. What it was, was to explain how Israel was supposed to act in the promised land. They acted in a way that revealed who God is, not how righteous they are. That's how it was supposed to be. They were, they were to be a kingdom of priests leading others to the righteousness of God. Their obedience was not a means for salvation, and what saved them then and what saves people now is faith in God. They were saved by grace through their faith. Genesis 15 verse 6 says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. So what is faith? Hebrews 11 one says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old were seen as righteous in the eyes of God. The author of Hebrews then goes on and talks about the faith of the people of old. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. Isaac. We see Moses' parents talked about. Moses himself, Joshua. The author even then goes on to say that he doesn't have time to describe the faith of, of others like David. All these people of old received their commendation, their righteousness, because of their faith. Scripture makes it clear both then in the Old, old Testament and now that we, receive, we are made righteous in God's eyes by our faith. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are justified, declared righteous, and forgiven of sin because of our faith, not by anything else. And faith itself is a gift from God. Because if it wasn't, man could boast. 
We could be like the Pharisees and, o- and obey so that others could look at us and see how righteous we are. That still happens today. But God intends faith to be a gift. God has made faith a gift so that no one may boast and he receives the glory. R.C. Sproul describes our faith as not a blind faith, but one that is established upon coherent and consistent reasoning and upon sound empirical evidence. Our faith as believers is not one that we just blindly put into God. We have faith in evidence from God when we look back on the history of Scripture, when we look back on our own lives, we see evidence that we can put our faith and our trust in God. It is based upon sound reasoning. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes that we do not follow cleverly devised myths when, we, when they made known to us the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying that this is not a blind faith that is based on myths and fables, but it is based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the over 500 people who saw Jesus resurrected. The gospel is a mystery that has been revealed. In scripture, when, when the writers write about the gospel as a mystery, it's, they're talking about it as a mystery that's already been revealed. It's something that we can know. We're not pulled out of the kingdom of darkness into another kingdom of darkness, but God pulls us out of, a, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into mystery revealed in the gospel. We believe in a truth that is revealed to us. We have faith in something specific, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's not a faith in fables or myths, but it's based on true historical evidence and events. What the law is teaching us or has taught us is that we are saved by grace through faith. That there is no good thing that we can do to receive salvation. The law revealed the knowledge of sin and points out our need for a savior. It saves us about as much as a medical diagnosis cures. The medical diagnosis points out the problem. It is not the cure. What the law does is it points out the problem. It does not save. And it points us to the solution, Jesus Christ. And it tells us that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to be saved apart from faith and the work of Christ. A good person by society's standards does not receive salvation. There are going to be plenty of people that were good by society's standards in hell. Apart from Christ, even our morally good actions are tainted by sin. Every good person has sinned. Every good person is born in sinful flesh. There are no truly good people except for Jesus Christ. And because of these sins, we've been separated from God. Because of these sins, we face the eternal wrath of God. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world to uphold the law perfectly. And in his purity, he bore the fullness of God's wrath and punishment for our sins that when we put faith in him and in his works, that we might be saved. He went to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, did what no other man could do. And it's only because of him and his work 
that we can repent and be forgiven of our sins. And Jesus tells us that in John 14, 6, when he tells us that he is the only way to the Father. It is only through him that, that we can receive forgiveness from God. And it's not just believing that Jesus can save, but it's believing in Jesus for salvation. Trusting that what he did on the cross is enough for us to be saved. And this faith that we can have is a gift from God. We only believe because God has given us the ability to do so. R.C. Sproul comments on this well. He says, God did not give the law as a way for us to attain status in the family, or in his family. The law was given to show us the righteousness of God. It was given so that we can see the perfect righteousness of God and by comparison see ourselves warts and all in despair for our own righteousness. The law sends us rushing to the cross and running for grace. So what we, the first thing that we can learn from the law is our own unrighteousness. And that should leave us, leave us rushing to the cross, seeking the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that today, even if you're a good person by society's standards, you are destined for hell unless you repent and believe in, the, in what Jesus has done on the cross and make him your Lord and Savior. But if you have done that, our faith doesn't stop there. Believers, we are sanctified by the very same thing that saves us. By God's grace, we can have the faith that God will conform us to the image of his son, that he will make us holy and righteous, not in this life, but in the next one. We don't just profess faith and call it good. I tell our students all the time that you don't just pray a prayer, raise your hand, walk down, down the aisle, and you're good. But the Christian life is faith that God will continually be conforming us to the image of his son. Our faith is a living faith, one that leads to good works. We aren't saved by our good works, but our faith will leave us, lead us to good works, not because we're earning our salvation, but because we're doing it for the joy that's set before us. This is part of our sanctification, part of us becoming more like Christ. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Scripture is calling us to work out our faith, meaning our sanctification, meaning work out the sin in our lives and pursue righteousness. But this isn't dependent upon ourselves. Verse 13 in Philippians 2 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In becoming more like Christ, we put faith in God that he will, he will work out our sinfulness and bring our faith to its fullness. God is working it out within us, but uses human action, uses our obedience to do that. God's work is done through our obedience. It is a, I mean, this is a mystery that is yet to be revealed to us in its entirety, but as Christians, sometimes, all the time, Faith takes courage. We have to be courageous and, and overcome our fears in believing that God will do what he says he will do. Sanctification isn't a let go and let God theology. 
What it is is we take hold of God's promises and obey him because of that. There's human responsibility at play. And this is where we see Israel misunderstand the law. And we can quickly fall into that trap that following Jesus' commands brings us salvation. We have faith that God is working out our salvation through our obedience. That brings us to the second way that Israel misunderstood the law. They were ritualistic, meaning they were without their heart and their love for God. And the prophets make this clear to us, that their obedience in the law no longer was rooted in their love for God, that it was rooted in getting the blessings that God promised. They forgot what the most important blessing was, though. They rested on their finances, their, their military strength, and just didn't care about the other blessing, which the most important one, if you remember, is God's presence and seeking the joy that can only come from God's presence. They obeyed the rituals, but sought joy elsewhere, sought joy in other idols, in looking at their borders, and looking at how rich their country was. Hosea 6.6 tells us that God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God is saying is that their rituals, their sacrifices are worthless because there is no knowledge of God, there is no steadfast love. In Amos, God specifically says that he hates their worship because there is no knowledge of God and steadfast love. Sure, Israel obeyed, but they didn't faithfully obey. They forgot what true faithful obedience was. And this true faithful obedience is obedience with the desire for true joy that only comes from God. They were to obey with a deep desire for the joy, that, for joy with the faith that true joy is found with God, from, in God and that he will give it to them as a blessing. Basically, they were to obey with the faith that God would reward them for their faith. Ultimately, their, their faith shouldn't be rooted in material blessings, but in the blessing of God's presence. There is a reward for faithful obedience, and in our society today, that makes us uncomfortable. We feel like we should be doing good works for the sake of good works. But that's actually a worldly philosophy from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Nowhere in Scripture does it say to do good works for the, for the sake of good works. And that is so obvious that there's an episode of Friends where they talk about the fact that you can't do good things just for the sake of good things. Our society knows it. They write it into sitcoms. But yet we believers feel uncomfortable when we, f- when we think about working and obeying for the sake of a reward. But that's what the purpose of the law was. It shows us that from obedience comes blessings. Early on, for a brief moment, Israel understood this. I mean, when, when God uh, punishes them for, their, for the golden calf, what he does is he tells them, you can, I'll still put you in the promised land, you'll still be a nation, you'll still be a people, you'll get the blessings, the fertile soil, uh, you'll have a lot of babies, you'll be strong militarily, you'll have a lot of money. But he says that he will not go with them, that his presence won't be with them. And in this moment, Israel understood 
how bad that was. In Exodus 33, 4, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. In this moment, Israel understood the importance of the presence of God. They understood that that was the most important and it was the vital blessing to come from their obedience. They knew they weren't anything or anyone without God. They knew that they were just some group of people. That, I mean, Deuteronomy, Moses tells them that God chose them because they were unimpressive. They knew that they could receive all the blessings except God, and they were good things. But without God, they were worthless. Their response shows they had faith that their greatest joy would come from God. They knew this was a disastrous word, and they knew that they were expected to obey with the desire for the presence of God, which would bring ultimate joy. Israel got it for like two weeks. Not only does God want our actions, but primarily God wants our hearts. He wants our faith. He wants us to obey for the joy that's set before us. He wanted Israel to obey for the joy that's set before them in God's presence. In Exodus 33, verse 4, their right obedience expressed, or their right reaction, they're, they're reacting out of disobedience, their right reaction expressed that they believed that God was their source for ultimate joy. The joy from their material blessings, the land, the money, the, the military, was just a reflection of the joy that they could find in God. The joy from our material blessings are just a reflection, a fraction, a brief, small look at the joy that we can only find in God. Jesus is our example in this too. Hebrews 12.2, the author writes, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus obeyed for the joy that was set before him. He didn't go to the cross for the sake of doing a good work, but he went to the cross for the future blessings, for the joy, the blessing of joy. Today, we are expected to obey as well. Even though we're not under the old covenant, Jesus tells us that we are expected to obey. In John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. When we obey God, we are Jesus's friends. He recognizes us, us as friends. We are seen as righteous because of our obedience. We obey with our hearts as well as our actions, because we saw with Israel, our actions don't earn us anything in this, potentially in this life, or definitely in the next. God wants our faith and our hearts in our obedience. Faithfully obeying is more than just doing the right things consistently. When we faithfully obey, we're saying that by obeying God in this way, I am putting my faith in him that the joy on the other side of this will be greater than the joy I could experience by not obeying. This applies to working with excellence. This applies to parenting well. And I, let me say this, as the student ministries director, oh, we have really, really good students. Not righteous students, by any means. 
but really good students. And in, in talking with Daniel, who was formerly a youth pastor, he keeps telling me that I'm the luckiest youth pastor uh, in, in the world, in the history of youth ministry. And that's, that is due to parenting well, that the parents of our teens have, have obeyed how God has called them to parent for the joy that's set before them. It applies to how we treat our spouses. It applies to how we read our Bible. We don't read our Bible just to check things off of a list, but we read our Bible expecting to be blessed and expecting to receive joy. Even as I preach this, this feels uncomfortable to me. And that's just how ingrained this false, this worldly philosophy of doing good works for the sake of good works is inside me and in our society. And I'm just going to reiterate again, that is nowhere in Scripture. So another thing that we can learn from studying the law is we learn why we obey. We obey expecting that God will, will bless us based on how he does, in the, or based on what he says in Scripture. Not expecting wealth and prosperity. Just look at church history. You see that's not, it's not promised to us but we expect joy that comes from seeking God. We expect joy in this life and to be in the presence of God in the next. We obey with right hearts, seeking to please God. We obey with the expectation of future rewards. Hebrews 11.6 says this about faith and obedience. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, for whoever would want to be in God's presence, must believe that he exists, that God exists, and that God rewards those who seek him. It says it right there. Obedience requires faith that God exists and that God will reward us when we seek him in faithfulness. We run the race that is set before us expecting to be rewarded. People don't run races just for the sake of running a race. Well, I don't. I don't run. Um, I played football, and, and you just like sprint for like six seconds, and then you're done. You run the race that's, expect, that's before you expecting to be rewarded. We obey expecting to be rewarded. There was a football coach that... Uh, he was a New York Jets coach, and they were terrible, like they always have been. And, and he was frustrated by some of the reporters' questions, and in a press conference, he said, you play to win the game. You play to win the game. We obey for the joy that's set before us. We obey expecting to win the race. We obey for the future rewards. We obey for the presence of God and the future with him and the ultimate joy that can be found in him. So for us today, the old covenant is that. It's old. Hebrews 8.13 says that the law is obsolete. It is old, gone. It's been fulfilled. But just because it's old doesn't mean we throw it out like our phones. Just because it's obsolete doesn't mean we just toss it by the wayside. We don't unhitch from the, from the Old Testament and from the Old Covenant. Just because it's old doesn't mean that it's not important. Just because it's old doesn't mean that it's not, 
that it's irrelevant. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant, but it's, it's just that it's fulfilled its purpose. In Galatians 3, 24 to 26, Paul talks about its purpose. He says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This guardian that Paul talks about was a staple in Greek society. The King James Version says that it's a schoolmaster. And that guardian, what that guardian did was for rich families who were able to employ this person, it, they, they took the, their kids that were aged from 6 to 16 and they corrected their behavior. They, they taught them how to live within their society. They taught them how to act rightly. And that was the law for, for God's people. The law taught us what righteousness and holiness looks like. That this is how we are to act if we are the people of God. But it didn't achieve righteousness for God's people. The law doesn't bring righteousness. What it does is bring knowledge of sin. It shows that we cannot perfectly obey. And we see that in Israel's history. This isn't just a group of like 10 people that couldn't obey, but this is an entire nation that for generation after generation after generation broke the covenant, showing us the sinfulness of man. The law also brings us knowledge of God, that we see God through the law. We see his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. We see his wrath, but we see his grace and his steadfast love. Even when God punished Israel with the exile, he still promised them that there would be a remnant, that they weren't just done as a nation, that still a savior and a, and a savior king would come from Israel. That's what I love about the book of Hosea with the student ministries last fall we studied it, or this, this past spring we studied it, and in the midst of God just saying all of the punishments that are coming to Israel unless they obey, God still calls Israel his son. The son who he taught to walk. And that's the law. Teaching us how to live what God expects of a holy people. The law also points us to Christ because we can't obey it. There, it is impossible for us to uphold the law. The law points us to our need for a savior and points us to Christ who is that savior and our need for a new heart. It's that passage that Craig read this morning from Jeremiah 31. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on, our, on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Next week, we'll talk about what that means, that God has written the law in our hearts. 
that he's put the law within us. But this week, we can rejoice in the fact that he has, that he's given us the ability to obey. We're still working out our sinfulness, yes, but we are obeying for the joy that's set before us, for the joy of being in the presence of God. And we can rest in the fact that we don't need to work to earn our salvation, but that Jesus has done that work for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and and for how it reveals who you are. Thank you that, that we do have a Savior, that he has done the work on our behalf, that he went to the cross for our sins, that he upheld the law so that he could be the sacrifice for us. I thank you that we can rest in knowing that we can't do anything to earn salvation, but it has been it has been given to us through Jesus. Thank you for who you are and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.